Built Not Born, episode 44. I'm Joe Chickarone. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest is Josh Vogel. Josh Vogel is the co-owner of the Jiu-Jitsu Company in Philadelphia. Josh and I have a far-ranging discussion. We talk Jiu-Jitsu. We talk the importance of having a game plan, not just for the mat, but for life. We discuss problem solving. Josh and I speak longevity, how to stay on the mat, how to deal with injuries. He discusses challenges he's faced. We talk favorite failures, what it's like to be a small business owner. It was a fun conversation. It was great to sit down with Josh. Josh and I go way back. He is a great guy. Him and his wife, Angie, own the jiu-jitsu company in Old City, Philadelphia. He is a great jiu-jitsu instructor. I was honored to have him on the show. Also, him and Angie not only own a jiu-jitsu school, they also own the Jiu-Jitsu Candle Company. They make some of the best candles you'll ever see. I'll put their link in the show notes. Definitely check that out. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Josh Vogel, black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, small business owner, and head instructor at the jiu-jitsu company. And remember, life is built, not born. Josh Vogel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Good talking to you, man. Thank you for joining us. Excited to have you. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? I'm a Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I have some hobbies and stuff on the side, but mainly most of my attention is devoted to teaching jiu-jitsu, organizing jiu-jitsu, trying to do a better and better job at both of those things as much as possible. On the side, I skateboard a lot. I want to get into jiu-jitsu and your really creative way of teaching and organizing the concepts of jujitsu and even the game plans you put forward. I see your students do. I'm going to get into that. But before we do, I want us to go back all the way to the beginning. Where did you grow up? So when I was about nine, I moved to New Jersey. So I, I was born in Manhattan, lived in Brooklyn until I was about nine. And then I moved to New Jersey from nine until I was 17. When I was 17, I moved to Philly. Who was your biggest influence when you were a kid? If someone asked a 10 or 12-year-old version of Josh, who, who you look up to? God, I'm so boring, man. Like I never really looked up to anybody. <laughs> there were skateboarders that I wanted to skateboard, I guess you could say. I never had a Michael Jordan poster on my wall or anything like that. Skateboarding was a huge part of my childhood, so I liked... People like Ray Barbie. He was one of the skateboarders that I watched a lot as a kid. He was very famous at the time. Steve Caballero, uh, a lot of these old like Powell Peralta company skaters. I had a lot of friends, and then I was I would do my own activities. I focused more on what I was doing, and I didn't focus a whole lot on what other people were doing as much. That sounds like a, some great life advice there. Mind your own business. Just get your work done. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a life lesson in there. How about touch on skateboarding? Where's your favorite place to skateboard these days? These days, my favorite is just, I get like maybe, I'll take two or three hours and just skate through the whole city. 
I like going from spot to spot, but the most fun is like in the streets, in between spots. Like I'll go up to Payne's Park up by the Schuylkill River. And then I my school was in Old City. So my favorite thing is cruising through Old City, skating around some small spots in the alleys, going through Chinatown, up and down Market Street. There's all these little nooks and crannies in the city. Like for me, it's um half about cruising around and doing tricks. And then the other half is exploring little nooks and crannies in the city that I haven't either I haven't seen before or I haven't really seen that much. So it's I use skateboarding as an excuse to explore Philly. So for me, the best part is just making as many hitting as many miles as possible throughout the city. Is that more like your Zen, your mental retreat when you do that to clear your head? Would you say it's that or is it different? You- I think like it's different purposes. So like sometimes it's I tend to be too serious sometimes. Like I, I get lost in jujitsu a lot and it in a very like work mode. And even though jujitsu is super fun and I have a great time on the mat, I think I do tend to be too serious sometimes. So not in a mean kind of way, but just lost in my own head with jujitsu. So when I go skateboarding, it takes a while, but usually after an hour or two, I can relax and have fun and enjoy myself in a non-goal-oriented kind of way. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I I think everyone needs something just to lose themselves in. Where if some people that is jujitsu, but that being your pr- profession, that, that probably your profession is not a great way to lose yourself. So it's probably something else. And that's probably your something else. You're outside, you're moving around, motion, got, got the air hitting your face. Uh, that's pretty cool. I do. I do lose myself. Like I have fun in jujitsu a lot. And there's times where I cut loose and don't, it's not as regimented and goal oriented. And I'll just roll and have fun and goof around, but I'm finding because it's my profession, I take it very seriously. It's those moments are smaller and smaller where I cut loose and be goofy in jujitsu. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, skateboarding is more and more that kind of thing for me. And it's weird with skateboarding even because I go through these periods where I try to turn skateboarding into an organized goal-oriented activity. And it's, it's just, I'm wired that way. Like I'm wired to, okay, what, why am I failing this trick? What are the three things that I should be doing better. Where's my head placement? Where should I be putting? And you can't, I I can't do that. I got to back off and not be so serious about skateboarding. So you mentioned jujitsu. How'd you first discover Brazilian jujitsu? What brought you to it? So years ago, I used to do a couple different styles of Kung Fu in like 90, late 98, 1999. And was around when I started doing that. And I instantly fell in love with martial arts. But the problem is in the styles of Kung Fu that I was doing, there was almost no sparring whatsoever. And I was really into the, I liked the techniques. I liked the forms. I liked like the exercise and like movement components of it. It was exercise, but it was also like mentally engaging and artistic. But when I would spar with people, I would get wrecked. And the problem was, is that there was just no like practical way of taking this thing that was supposed to be like, okay, martial arts, you're learning a way to handle yourself with another person who's resisting you or trying to fight you. I wasn't able to apply that at all in the way that I was training and with the style that I was training. So eventually I found like around 2003, I discovered jujitsu by got my hands on an old VHS tape of UFC two, and my brother, who at the time did some karate, we would spar sometimes and try. We would try to beat each other and figure out like different tricks for getting one over on each other. And so when we saw these UFC VHS tapes, we saw Hoist Gracie like basically grabbing people and dragging them to the ground and strangling them. 
So naturally, my brother and I tried to do that to each other. And we realized that <laughs> we quickly realized that neither of us knew what we were doing. So then we, then we started seeking instruction and that was the beginning. You're doing this for a living. You have your own academy. At what point do you decide to go from, this is so cool. I want to do this for a living. Do you remember that moment? As soon as I did martial arts at all, like in 1998, I knew that I was going to do martial arts for a living, but I just didn't know how that would, how to make that happen. And then as soon as I found jujitsu, I was like, okay, this is my martial art. This is like when I was doing other martial arts before there were good things and bad things about them, but it never felt like something that I knew I want to do martial arts, but it never seemed like the right one for me that I would be doing forever. Whereas as soon as I found jujitsu and as soon as I took my first class, I was like, all right, this is what I've been looking for. This is the one. Of all the martial arts, I, I took Taekwondo in high school. Then I went to Kempo Karate. There's so many martial arts out there. Sometimes there's a school in every shopping center almost in the suburbs. But what do you think that makes Gracie Jiu-Jitsu different than all the other martial arts? How would you describe it? I think Jiu-Jitsu is within martial arts in general. I think uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or Gracie Jiu-Jitsu is a martial art that doesn't necessarily have a lot of the traditional martial arts elements to it. So for example, there are schools that you have to wear a white uniform and you got to bow and you call your teacher by a certain title and all this kind of stuff. But most of the jiu-jitsu, most of the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu schools that I've seen don't follow that format. They're a lot more like mellow and relaxed atmosphere. And I think that's one thing that makes Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu different and appeals to a lot of people because it's in a lot of places, it's run more like a recreational sport than it is run like a martial art. And there's upsides and downsides to that. But I think that's one thing that appeals to a lot of people is that it, it's generally informal culture. I think another thing is that out of, if you like narrow down jujitsu into all the combat sports, martial arts, like boxing, Muay Thai, judo, wrestling, Brazilian jujitsu tends to be just as effective in fighting as any of the other combat sports but a lot easier on the body. So I see a lot more Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioners sparring two, three, four times a week, well into their 50s and sometimes their 60s with like a reasonable level of intensity. Obviously, a 60-year-old is not going absolutely bonkers trying to beat a 20-year-old athletic purple belt or something like that. But you do see like regular, consistent sparring amongst older practitioners or people who come from like injuries and stuff like that. Whereas I think that's a little bit harder with some other grappling martial arts. Like I know judo, I love judo, but I think judo tends to be hard on the body with all the falling and throwing. And I think from the feet, sparring multiple times per week at 50, 60, 70, 80% intensity is harder on the body than doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu um, at that same intensity for the same frequency. And then I think boxing, I love boxing too, but you, I don't think you can spar intensely with boxing at 50, 60, 70, 80% intensity multiple times per week as you get older. So I think it's the more relaxed culture of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And then I think within the combat sports that have similar cultures, I think it's the ability to safely spar more frequently for people who are a little bit older and can't afford to get banged up as much. Yeah. When say Helson Gracie, would you take a class with him or Hoist Gracie? Like you call them Hoist and Helson. These are like almost like the founders of the art. They're, they're the upper echelon. Where the local Taekwondo school that I used to go to, when the owner walked in, the 
everyone's like an eighth degree black belt in Taekwondo. When they walked in, like you would act like the president of the United States. Everyone stands yeah. up and is attention and salutes and bows. Like it's like crazy. Then you walk into a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school and you say, hey, what's up? Everyone's first name basis, no bowing. And it's just so relaxed. That's a pretty special vibe. Yeah. It's pretty cool. You just go in and fist bump and you go, which is, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's like a more, that, that's what appeals to me about it a lot too, is that it's relatively informal for a martial art or for a combat sport. And it's for me, that suits my personality pretty well, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, like, sure. I think you and I are similar. I feel like when I started jujitsu, I was working for a moving company, carrying furniture and doing all these other jobs. And you have a lousy day at work and you're all stressed out. I had so much fun just going into jujitsu and, and seeing my buddies and having a relaxed atmosphere where I didn't have to be like tense and was allowed to make eye contact with the head instructor. And I didn't have to make some sort of title or anything like that. Like I thought it was a nice way to approach things. I want to touch base on your teaching style. We've, we've trained together for years. Something I just really like, I find so unique about your teaching style is the way you teach and you organize the techniques. And it's almost like the Socratic method of BJJ. Like with Socrates, okay. no one else asking questions. And I know one thing I struggled when I first started training with you years ago. I love it mm-hmm. now, but like when I first started training, I'm used to the privates where here's the move and you do the move and you got, you need to know this move. You need to know that move. But when we, we would get together, you'd be like, so what are you struggling with? So what do you do from here? I, I'm like, Hey, Josh, I'm having trouble with X. You go, okay. Yeah. So what are they doing? So what are you doing? Where's their foot? Where's their hips? And I'm like, Josh, <laughs> I'm just give me the move. Like show, show me something. I don't know. After it took me two or three privates, I think you're known for is like one move for each position. Yes, let's just start yeah. there. So you can speak to that, like one move for each position. How, how would you describe that method of teaching? Yeah. So I think that that advice, one move from every position is my first layer of advice for people who are starting Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And that's like the, that's the beginning of everything. Because when you start doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, there's a series of positions that you learn. Like you have to have a takedown, so standing position. And then on the ground, you have you know, top positions and bottom positions. And then when you divide those positions up to mount, side control, back position, some kind of guard position, maybe knee on belly if you want to dig in a little bit. And then you have top and bottom position for all of those. And so what ends up happening is you learn a bunch of different things from a bunch of different positions, and then you go spar and you either, you get confused because there's either too many techniques that you know, and you start to mix them together and mess them up, or you don't know what to do in certain positions. So you might have five different attacks from the close guard, but not know how to escape from the mount position. My thought is that if you can spread that out a little bit, just have one, one technique, just to start off with one technique from every major position, then that is a way of anchoring your mind when you do jujitsu. So you slap hands with somebody and they double leg you and you're on your back and they pass your guard on bottom. Now you're on bottom of side control. What is your technique from there? And even if you fail at the technique, at least it gives you something to focus on where instead of being on bottom of side control and you're just drowning and you're like flailing around and I don't know what to do from here, you're like, okay, I got to elbow escape. So I'm going to turn to my side. I'm going to frame with my right elbow on their left hip. And then I'm going to make sure that my left arm is in a safe spot so I don't get arm bird. And so it takes away the confusion of knowing too many techniques or not knowing any techniques. And it also anchors you to doing one specific thing from each position that you can then build off of. And then that's where that Socratic questioning stuff that you were talking about comes in. 
problem solving. So if you're in a position and it's, I know one move from this position, move one, and you're doing move one and it's being stopped. And then that's when you add the next technique. How can we make this not be a problem then? Or let's exactly. how, how can we neutralize what they're trying to do? Then that's the next layers. It's not new techniques that aren't addressing what you're currently struggling with. It's very focused. How do you know when a student needs to keep working and refining something they already know? Or when do they need to learn something new? So I think, let me, I'm just going to backtrack to the previous question just for one second. So the, the, with the problem solving thing you were talking about, just one last part about that is that the reason that I'll ask questions like that, okay, Joe, you were trying to elbow escape from bottom of side control and you had your left elbow on your partner's left hip or your right elbow on your partner's left hip. What were they doing to stop you from getting your right knee across their waist? And then you say, they were pulling my right elbow up so that I couldn't frame in the hip anymore. And so the reason that I focus on that part of it is because if I give you a million and one details to an elbow escape from side control, you're never going to remember them unless they mean something to you. And so like when you learn the rough outline of an elbow escape, you go try it and then either you're successful or you're unsuccessful. And when you're unsuccessful, then, and you know exactly why you're unsuccessful, then the solution to that problem becomes meaningful and you're more likely to remember it. If you add a detail at that point, then the detail solves the problem instead of just being this meaningless floating detail in outer space. That makes it's, sense? Yeah, it sticks more. Talk about the life skill of jujitsu. I think jujitsu teaches self-awareness. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think if you approach it from a self-aware perspective, I think if you're introspective about your jujitsu and you are a self-aware person, then I think you can channel that into your jujitsu and become more effective. And I think if you're not a self-aware person, I think you can be trained to become self-aware. But I think at some point, I think jujitsu, you're going to get more out of it if you are self-aware. I don't know if it always necessarily teaches people to be self-aware. I think somebody's got to point it out because I've seen a lot of times where people learn jujitsu and there's just no self-awareness whatsoever. And some of those people still get very good at jujitsu, but they get good by accident and just by repetition and just doing things on the mat. But there's no awareness. But I think if you can bring awareness to your jujitsu, awareness to yourself, the problems you're coming across to the learning process, then I think you can shortcut your jujitsu and learn a lot quicker. Jujitsu is problem solving. Mm -hmm. And I think life's about problem solving. There's a lot of good in life, but you run into a lot of big challenges. And as you come across them, you have to figure out what action do I take? And basically, what were some of our actions? Getting back to that Socratic method, Say someone took a private with you and they would say, hey, Josh, I'm tired today. Instead of saying, yeah. you need a cup of coffee, giving them another technique. You would say, okay, why are you tired? What time did you wake up? 11 a.m. Okay, what time did you go to bed? They go, 3 a.m. Why did you go to bed 3 a.m.? Uh, I watched 16 episodes of Breaking Bad last night. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Now you, like, like you deconstruct how you got in trouble. You take away the 16 episodes, maybe watch two instead of 16 and yeah. you have eight hours of sleep instead of four, then all of a sudden you're not tired the next day. So they didn't need like a cup of coffee, which would be like the new technique. They need not to do something like that self-awareness. Like, well, as long as I don't do this, I don't get myself in trouble. Yeah. And that's uh, like the, that's the decision-making part of it. Cause if you're tired, a solution to that problem would be to 
have better lifestyle habits that make you less tired the next time. But then another solution would be to smoke crack. So so you got different solutions, but then you got to look at your decision. So in jujitsu, it's the same thing. I'm having trouble passing somebody's uh, spider guard. And I could hulk out and just go bonkers on them and make them scared and scared of getting injured. And then they'll pull their legs back in and I'll be successful passing their guard because they're scared of getting hurt when I freak out on them. Mm-hmm. And that's a way to solve that problem. But it's not a good way to solve that problem. So then you start looking at the decisions that you make on the mat. Like, even if you're successful, are you successful because you made good decisions that have a lot of longevity to them? Or are you successful because of some other factor because you're way bigger than your training partner and they're scared of you hurting them or you're super aggressive or you were successful because you're way stronger than that person. But when you come across somebody who's stronger than you, your success fails. So it's, you know, just like that smoke and crack versus getting some sleep thing. It's about the decision-making that you have on the mat. And it's about looking at your plan of action and then seeing, okay, is there a better, more sustainable way to accomplish the same set of goals? You know? Absolutely. You mentioned injuries a few minutes ago. How can the average practitioner who wants to train two, three, four times a week, loves training Brazilian jiu-jitsu, what are some tips to stay on the mat and not get injured? Like we all have injuries. I have three jiu-jitsu surgeries in the last six years. And uh, I wouldn't switch any of them. I've learned so much from them. I met amazing people, PTs and surgeons. They they were actually a net positive. Like I wouldn't switch any of them, but I'm not looking down my fourth one. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. So how, a couple things, like say injuries, how can someone maybe over 30 make sure they stay on the mat? What are some recommendations you could give? So I think the first thing is being wise about who you train with and how you train. So for example, when I hit 30 and I noticed that I'm 42 right now. So as the years went on after my 30s started going, I noticed that I was more prone to injuries. And when I would get injured, I would have to spend more and more time off the mat. And so what the first thing I started to do was to be way more selective about who I train with and how I train with them. And what that means is like, there are people that I'm great friends with. I really like them as human beings, but they are not safe training partners for me because they're more concerned with being successful than they are with keeping me safe. And sometimes they will take risks with my body that put me at, at in positions where it's likely that I'm going to get hurt. So for example, I've trained with people that are 80 pounds heavier than me that will do will pick me up and slam me when they're trying to do stacking guard passes. That's not good for my back. That's why I have back problems and neck problems. I'll cut either I'll either cut those people out or if I do train with them, I'll make sure that I focus on staying in positions where my risk of injury is minimized and I'll make decisions that keep me safe. So for example, if I train with that same person and I know that they're going to get to a stack pass position on me and if I try to keep my guard against them, my back's going to get messed up, I'll let them pass my guard because I would rather stay safe and fight out of side control than have them pick me up and slam me on my neck and mess my neck up where I can't train for a week. So that's the first thing. Um, second thing is making sure that I notice that I get injured a lot less when I weight train consistently. Mm-hmm. So for example, just squats, deadlifts, bench press, some sort of weighted pulling motions. 
when I weightlift consistently, I tend to get injured a lot less. So I think that's very helpful. And then another thing too, is to make sure that you communicate with your training partners and make sure that you make it known when you're training with them, if you feel like things are getting to an unsafe place. So for example, you roll with people sometimes and maybe they're getting a little bit ahead and you start to get hype with them and then they get a little bit more hype with you. And then things get into that, like we're both driving 120 miles an hour on the highway kind of zone where mm-hmm. thing, you know, the wheels are shaking off the car. At that point, I think it's important to be able to say, hey, I think things are getting a little bit heated. You mind if we turn this down a little bit? And I think that helps a lot too. One of the biggest words in the English language, ego. So you, you yeah. have to have the self-awareness that you're with someone that potentially may slam you or may stack you on your neck. And I find now being a brown belt, there'll be a 25-year-old blue belt who wrestled who's 50 pounds heavier than me that now all of a sudden they're like trying to do these explosive moves. And I'm like, dude, you got to chill. You you literally have to say, slow down. There's still certain people that their mind says, I got to get the submission. I got to submit this person. That's a great example. And I think that's why communication is so important, especially because a lot of people don't realize how they feel on the mat. Like I've never rolled with myself and you've never rolled with yourself. So it's hard for, for all I know, I could be somebody who feels super aggressive when I'm rolling with people, but in my own head, I might feel like I'm going light and like gentle, but to somebody else, their experience of me might be that, damn, Josh is so aggressive. He grips way too hard. Like he's super painful to roll with. I hate it. Mm -hmm. And, but in my head, I'm like, yeah, I roll super gentle with everybody. So I think communication helps bridge that gap a lot. And I think to tag onto that, taking responsibility, this is something Angie talks a lot about my wife. She's a very good black belt as well. And she talks a lot about taking responsibility for yourself. So when I roll with other people, part of it's that I can communicate with them what I want from them, but I also have to be responsible for how I feel to them. So I can't tell somebody that I want to flow roll. And then all of a sudden jam on some really hard shoulder pressure and mess their neck up. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I would teach a class in the city. And at the end, these two blue belts from other schools that are 60 pounds heavier than me, they're rolling pretty aggressive in the open mat. They want to roll with me after class. I don't trust them enough to roll with them. But then you have to to lose your ego and say, you know what? Not right now. What's a good way to do that? When you choose your training partners, like someone you don't know, that seems a bit aggressive. That's like, hey, let's roll. And I'm like, eh, I'm good right now, brother. How's that work? No, that's a, that's a really good point. I think that's something that I think being honest, but tactful. So I've been in that situation before where somebody who's my back is feeling messed up that day and somebody who's like super aggressive and way bigger than me wants to train. And I know it's just going to tear my back up. I think just letting them know I'm not going to train today, but I'll catch you another time. Something to like, you don't want to be a jerk about it and be like, nah, you're too much of a spaz. At the same time, I think it's important to be okay telling people no, just say like, today, like my back's kind of bugging me. So I'm just going to go with people around my size today, or I'll roll with you another time, but uh, but not today. I just say it in a nice way so that it doesn't sting too much for them because nobody likes being rejected. And, and if they ask you about it, then you could maybe go a little deeper into it. Say like my back's really bothering me. And I noticed that you're about 60 pounds heavier than me and you tend to do a lot of stack passing. And so I think I, I want to keep my back safe. So I don't want to put myself in that situation today. But when my back's feeling better, I'd love to train with you, like something like that. But I think that's a super important thing to be able to 
tell people no in a tactful way. Also for yourself mentally, I know some people struggle with that because they think if I tell people no, then it's going to look like I'm like a wimp and I don't want to roll with people and I'm ducking people. Mm-hmm. But I, and I used to feel like that. I didn't want people to think that I was scared of rolling with anybody. So I would roll with just anyone. And I got hurt a lot like that. And as I got older, I can't afford to get hurt that much anymore. So what I had to learn how to do was to tactfully say no. And then also um, in my own head, get used to the idea that I don't owe anybody my body. Mm. So if I roll with somebody and I say yes, because I don't want to hurt their feelings or because I want to appear to be like a tough guy or something like that, my spine doesn't know the difference between those things. And I don't owe my (laughs) spine to anybody. Yeah, and then after no. that roll, let's say you rolled for five minutes and you got slammed again, and, or they, you know, you did something where you jacked your back up more. In twenty minutes, they're out back in their day after the open mat, and then you might not see them again for weeks or months. And then you're yeah. dealing with a back injury for you know the next month. Where, where yeah, the, exactly. Where you just had to have one uncomfortable conversation. I love your idea of just being honest. I appreciate that. How about here's a topic: sport versus the traditional roots of self defense, or like Gracie Jiu Jitsu. Listening to uh, a class with Huron and Henner, Huron would say, okay, we're teaching you something, but this is a move that my grandfather would not do because this is sport. It's a legit move doing the tournament. It's great to learn, great to roll, fun to do, but this is not a self-defense part of jujitsu that you would do out in the street if you fought someone out in the road right now. How do you distinguish between I'm teaching you to defend yourself or I'm teaching you something that you can apply in your next tournament? How do you, do you delineate the two or do you blend the two together? How do you differentiate the sport to the self-defense side of jujitsu? I think, so part of that depends on what your academy is known for. So for example, here on Henner Gracie are, they're known for doing old school self-defense style Gracie jujitsu, and they market themselves as self-defense police training. They, they're obviously focused on that aspect of jujitsu. And so I think for them, it makes sense for them to tell their students like, hey, listen, this particular technique that we're doing is a sport jiu-jitsu technique. So it's not consistent with the overall theme of our school, but this is something that you could do if you were competing in like a, a good fight or an IBJJF event or whatever. For us, my school, we are focused more on the sport of jiu-jitsu, but we do keep some self-defense elements in mind. So I tend to focus more like a lot of, especially in the advanced classes, I come from a sport perspective. And in the beginners classes, we also teach a lot of things that like our beginners program is sport-based jiu-jitsu, but re- stuff that's relevant for self-defense as well. So for example, you know, I'm not teaching spider guard in the beginners class, but I am teaching single legs, double legs, top of the mount position, head and arm choke, take the back, rear naked choke, things like that, which are all things that don't require a lot of adjustment to be useful for self-defense scenarios, mm-hmm. certain self-defense scenarios, and are also things that would be useful in a mixed martial arts fight. But for an advanced program, I don't make that distinction very often because most of the people in my advanced classes are there mostly for sport jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. The thing about telling people that something is for, I think it really does come to the tone of the school. If your school is known as a sport jiu-jitsu school, then I think people can reasonably assume that most of what you're going to do is be sport jiu-jitsu based. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're towing the line, like we are with the beginners program, where it's sport jiu-jitsu 
that is self-defense relevant. I think pointing those things out is useful. And I think also maybe giving some insight like to the people who are clearly more self-defense oriented to those people, then I would give them maybe a way that they could train those things to be more relevant for self-defense. Because mm-hmm. again, and no matter whether you're doing self-defense or sports jiu-jitsu, the most important thing is how you're training that stuff. I think telling people, but then also giving them a way that they could train it to build their skills for self-defense or yeah. build their skills for sport. I appreciate you sharing that. How about you mentioned like beginner's class. So someone walked off the street, no training, say, hey, I want to learn this. What's the first class? If you had a one-on-one with them, what's the first move? What's the first hour of jujitsu look like with them? What do you teach them? I think it would depend on the person a lot. If it was somebody who was interested in, it would depend on their goals and it would depend on their level of athleticism and maybe partly their other build. So it would be a different class if it was somebody who was 220 pounds, just got out of college wrestling and wants to pursue a sport that you know, is another grappling sport that they can compete in as an adult. It would be different to talk to, to show them like a one-on-one beginners class than if I was showing somebody who was 130 pounds and interested in defending themselves because they work in a dangerous environment. But our beginners classes, like if it's a group class kind of situation that you're talking about and people are coming in for the first time for a group class, then that would depend on what week of the curriculum that we're on. But for the most part, it's going to be all stuff that's, like I was saying before, single leg takedown, double leg takedown, top of the mount, bottom of the mount, like one move from every major position. And all those techniques are things that are sport jiu-jitsu, but self-defense relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just love that one technique from every position. It's just a, a, a great base. When you wind up someplace you've never been before, that's when you add that technique. All right, show me a technique there. You work it till you find problems and you start problem solving. And yeah. Then you just, yeah, that's no, that's great. My kids swim. And it's amazing how everything overlaps. Swimming, jujitsu, life, sales, whatever field you're in, skateboarding, where the techniques and applications are different, but the principles remain the same. In swimming, one of the things I got out of the, the thing of personal best, where you're not looking in another lane you're just trying to be better than you were the last race. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they, yep. you have a time and you're just trying to beat that time the next time you jump in the pool. And like in jujitsu, I find that the same way where, where I'm not trying to tap everyone in the room. I'm not trying to be Gordon Ryan. I'm not trying to be Gary Tonin. I'm trying to get a little bit better than I was last class. Add one thing, perfect one sweep a little bit, tighten up a technique. If my motivation was tapping everyone in the room, I would have quit 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. You know, but but knowing that I could be a little bit better the next time I step on the mat, to me, that motivates me to keep going. Could you speak to yeah. that mindset? I know you share that mindset. Yeah, definitely. And I think the most important part of that is creating a metric that you can use. So for example, there's your swimming is based on speed, I think. So you have the pool that's a certain length. There's a certain amount of laps that you have to do, and you have to do that within a certain amount of time. So the metrics are all set. With jujitsu, it's a little bit harder because how you feel like you're doing is often different than how you're actually doing and how you're actually doing isn't consistent. If you look at it from like a zoomed out kind of perspective, like who you tap, who taps you, how many taps per round, those are, there's too many variables to factor in that unless you went from getting tapped zero times per round to a month later, you're getting tapped 10 times out of 10 by somebody who's your normal training partner. I think that you have to set very specific metrics in jujitsu to 
show you whether you're actually improving or not. So what I mean by that is if you and I roll, let's say you roll, we roll right now and you get me in a straight ankle lock and I tap and then we roll again. There's five and a half minutes left in the round. We roll again and I get a cut pass and I'm on top of side control and then you escape and we're in half guard and then you go for an Ezekiel choke from closed guard and I get out of it and then I start to pass the half guard again and then you and I roll again on Wednesday and I take your back and choke you and then we roll again on Friday and you foot lock me but on my other foot. It's really hard for either of us to measure improvement in that kind of situation because on paper, we both basically just did different things to each other, but there's no consistency. It's not like you did the footlock to me every single time on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And we were in that exact same position over and over again. We just went through a bunch of different positions. So it's hard to tell if either one of us got better at jujitsu or got worse at jujitsu. But I think if you have a project and you try to implement that project during open mat, and then you study the problems that you come across and measure your improvement by how successful you're solving those problems. That's a much better way to do it. Mm. So let's say like Monday, you and I slap hands, we roll, and you're working on getting me into a straight ankle lock position and finishing me with a straight ankle lock. Monday, I shut down your entry. You can't get me in a straight ankle lock position at all. I ended up passing butterfly guard, get on top of side control. You escape, we end up in half guard, and you didn't get a chance to work on your straight ankle lock. Then we roll again on Wednesday, and you get to step two of your ankle lock entry. You get me into butterfly guard, you kick through, you have me in single leg X, but I'm able to step my leg out of single leg X, go back to butterfly guard, pass, side control, we end up in half guard again. And then Friday, you're able to do the same entry from butterfly guard, you kick through, put me in single leg X, then you put my hips on the mat. And just as time runs out, you almost get me to tap, but I don't quite tap. You clearly made progress in your straight ankle lock throughout the course of the week. You were able to go from Monday, where you couldn't even get me in the position at all, to Wednesday, where you got me in the position, but I escaped from it, to Friday, where you entered, controlled the position, and you were just about to finish me with a straight ankle lock, but time ran out. That makes sense? So it's all about setting the metrics and making sure that the metrics that you're using to judge whether you are improved at jujitsu or, or getting worse at jujitsu are very clear metrics. And I find for me that the best metric, how successful I am solving the specific problems that I'm coming across in my goal. Thanks for that deep dive in jujitsu. I want to switch gears a little bit here. Uh, a part of the interview I call Share Your Secrets. What's the biggest challenge you ever faced? Biggest challenge I ever faced was opening a jiu-jitsu school. Yeah. Yeah. That was the biggest challenge. Yeah. What's the biggest lesson you learned from that? Something you could synthesize out. What would you say? What's the life lesson there so far? Have a goal, focus on the work, don't get distracted and focus on the process that gets you to that goal mm -hmm. and don't get distracted by things that don't contribute to that. That's right out of Seth Godin, who's a big uh, influence of mine. Uh, he's a marketing business author. He has a book called The Practice. It's one of my favorite of all time. And he says that you basically commit to a goal. You show up every day. You do the work regardless yep. of the outcome, knowing that you want to make progress every day and knowing that the result may or may not work, but you, you don't control the result. You just control the process that you put in place and the 100%. work you put forward. 
and you just keep going, it's going to work out eventually, but you don't control if you're a best-selling author, you sell 10 books. All you can do is write the best book possible. And maybe that may means you write 500 words a day for a year, then you can bring it to an editor and they edit it three times, then you send it out and whatever the market believes in it, that's it. And then you learn from it and you move on and you write the next book. Make sense? Yep, 100%. What failure of yours set you up for a future success? Do you have a favorite failure? Failure of mine. So uh, there's jujitsu failures and then there's like my life failures. Life failures. Yeah. I think every time that I acted in a selfish, in a way that was inconsistent with the things that I believe in, to me, that was a failure. So for example, like I believe generally in communication and being honest with people in a tactful way. And so there are plenty of times where maybe I was a jerk or I was, if you don't mind me cursing a little bit, if I was like a dick to somebody yeah. and I act, I did something, I said something out of spite or I said something mean for because I wanted to hurt their feelings, like those to me are failures. And those were meaningful failures because they made me better at doing that less and made me realize how important it is to stick to the things that I believe in. And that goes back um, to self-awareness because if you did not have self-awareness, I think it is a big part of being good at jujitsu is self-awareness. You wouldn't know that you acted that way. You would think, oh, they had it coming or they deserved it. Or, oh, I really showed them. I had a great one-liner. And I really said something they had no response to. But you the self-awareness to know you're being a dick and um, <laughs> that you want to be better the next time. You learn. Yeah, yeah, that. exactly. No, yeah. that's really good. No, thanks for sharing that. And then jujitsu failures were like every time I would like the biggest failures I had were getting tapped in competition. Mm -hmm. And I used those failures to every time I would get tapped in competition, I made it a goal to take whatever I got tapped with and turn that into one of my specialties. That's your MO, man. You just, you find something and you game plan it like you did the, uh, that half guard system. I, I remember you walked me through that years ago and I still use it part of my game. And I, I, it just, you could tell at some point that was not in your game. And at some yeah. point you decided that needed to be in my game. And then you basically created a little world in that half guard world where you're always one or two moves away from it. You jump in it and it's, it's yeah. And you could tell you created that from some point in the past where you didn't have that. Is that fair to say? Yeah, hundred percent. Really cool. How about, do you have a book that influenced your life or changed your mind? Do you have a favorite book? Yeah, my favorite books are all fiction. And so my favorite books are like the Dark Tower series by Stephen King, Dune. I like Ender's Game series a lot. They're mostly like science fiction or fantasy kind of books. I don't know that they're my favorite books. There are certain parts of those that I can I can see themes that influence the way that I think about my professional life and stuff like that because I read them when I was a teenager. So they sort of mold you when you're a teenager and mm -hmm. impressionable. So yeah. there's certain parts of those books that I can see where the themes of those books bled into my professional life as an adult, but then also just on an enjoyment level, those were my favorite books that were wonderful escapes for me from normal life and not escapes in the sense that I had a bad life or anything because I've had a pretty good life so far, but even a good life, it's nice to get away into another world sometimes. Yeah. I clear your head. Absolutely. And some people use jujitsu, but being your profession, you might need something else. That totally makes sense. How about what's the most exciting project you're working on now? Right now, there's I'm working on developing my underhook from the feet. So I'm studying. I got Kyle Sermonera's instructional. He's a high-level former competitive wrestler. I trained 
I've met him a couple of times and then he was training on the same training floor as me for a little bit, but now I think he's Gordon Ryan's wrestling coach. And so I got his instructional on how to use an underhook from standing. And so my main project right now is single leg takedowns, but I'm using what I've been studying in his instructional as a way to improve my entries into single leg takedowns and then improve my upper body clinching from the feet. And so I have organizing that into my own like little kind of subsystem and studying that right now. It's super exciting for me because, you know, I, I like takedowns a lot, but I haven't spent as much time as I would like organizing my takedown game from the feet. Very cool. I remember training with you. I always remember entry control submit or the three parts, right? Exactly. Yep. That's it. If you could spend a day with any Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor, alive or dead, who would you pick? I would pick Danaher for sure, John Danaher. There's, there are a lot of great jiu-jitsu coaches out there, either John Danaher or Guillermo Mendez. I would pick Danaher's brain about jiu-jitsu, like conceptual jiu-jitsu and how he organizes jiu-jitsu into systems and how he organizes his systems. And then I would pick Jeremy Mendez's brain about competition strategy and athlete preparation. What values do you try to pass on to your students? As far as training values, I try to encourage my students to all be proactive, meaning that at every moment that they're on the mat, they should be working towards a specific goal. So there's no stalling on the mat. There's no like clamming up and waiting out the rest of the round. I focus a lot on being proactive, having a plan of action for what you're doing, focus on troubleshooting the problems that you're coming across. And then as far as mat culture kind of stuff, Angie and I both focus a lot on creating an environment where there's this little, I know everybody says like no ego in jujitsu, but there's ego in jujitsu. But we're trying to emphasize a lot that to make the ego as low on the chain as possible and put the training floor ahead of everything. So having a healthy, happy, fun training environment where it doesn't matter if a really good blue belt triangles a brown or a black belt, that the focus is not on who beats who or who talks shit about who in the training in the in the changing room. Mm-hmm. The focus is 100% on I rolled with this blue belt, they got me in a triangle. This is a series of problems that led to that and we're going to work together to try to help me solve that problem. So even if there is a little bit of a sting because you got caught by somebody who's less experienced than you, that always takes a backseat to the bigger goal of trying to improve your jujitsu, their jujitsu, and the jujitsu of everybody on the training floor. You're basically saying planning, troubleshooting, culture. Yep, 100%. That. Yeah. That's, that's great, man. Two more questions. What advice would you have for maybe that person that's thinking about walking into a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school for the first time, what advice would you have for them? What mindset could you give them? Any tips or tricks? For sure. Like when you walk into a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school for the first time, because you're not part of that world yet, it's very hard to tell if this is a school that you're going to want to spend a lot of time at, or if it's the kind of place where it's exciting and you're new to it. So it's easy to jump into something without having a critical mind first. So my, my advice is Angie and I made, she made a post about this on Instagram the other day about what we call like the four C's of choosing a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school. But the first one is culture. So when you walk into a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school, 
do you feel welcome there when you walk in? Do people smile and say hi and introduce themselves? Do the staff do that? Do the students do that? Does everybody seem to be happy to be there? Is it the kind of place that you're going to want to go after you had a stressful day at work? The second C is cleanliness. So when you walk into a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu school, is it clean? Are the mats clean? Are the bathrooms clean? Are the are the general facilities like the changing rooms clean? Are the students clean? Is it the kind of place where because this is important stuff. Like you don't want to, it's like going to a restaurant. If you go into a restaurant and you notice that it's not clean or the bathrooms are dirty, it makes mm-hmm. you maybe not want to eat there as much. And for good reason, because of like hygiene and health standards. So the second one is cleanliness. Third one is what do we do? We did culture, cleanliness, cost is one thing. Obviously there is a general standard cost that most jiu schools are. They're anywhere from 150 a month to 200 something a month. And there's some wiggle room in there. But what I mean by cost is, are they transparent about their billing practices? So are you going to have to sign a contract? And if you do sign a contract, can you get out of the contract? Can you find the pricing readily? If you call the school, will they give it to you? Do you have to jump through a bunch of hoops to, to sign up or cancel? I think that stuff means a lot to a lot of people because it's People are taking time and energy and money away from their families or what they could be doing other things and spending it at your jujitsu school. Look and see if if the cost of the jujitsu school is transparent and it's something that you're comfortable signing up for. And then the last one is curriculum. And curriculum just means that there's got to be some sort of organization to the instruction. When you go in, do they have a beginner's program? And if they do have a beginner's program, is it organized or is it just the instructor showing like a random thing here or a random thing there? If there is no beginner's program, how do you go in as a brand new student who knows nothing? And how are they going to take you through the fundamentals of jiu-jitsu to help build you up to a more intermediate or advanced athlete? So I think curriculum just means, is there an organized process to getting people good at jiu-jitsu? So. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? This is great. When I was a kid, I don't know why I got this in my head, but I thought it would be great to get like Alfred E. Newman from Mad Magazine and then get like the what me worry quote on my body. And that's like the first thing I think of. And I know that's the kind of thing that right now it sounds like that would be cool. Oh yeah, I'm carefree. Like what me worry about like that kind of thing. But then if I actually got that tattoo, I would probably instantly think that it looked stupid on me. But if I had to pick one right now, I'd probably regret later. It would be Alfred E. Newman with uh, what me worry. That's perfect. What me worry. <laughs> that's awesome. Yep. I think that is about as good as a spot to any to wrap up. Josh Vogel. Thanks for joining us, man. <laughs> thanks, awesome. Joe. I appreciate you having me, man. Oh, thought, thanks for catching up. I like thank you for all your help through the years. You've been a tremendous teacher, helped me out tremendously. And my pleasure. If, if people are looking for you online, where can they find you? So the first place is at the website for our school, which is jujitsufilly.com. That's J-I-U-J-I-T-S-U-P-H-I-L-Y.com. You can find us on Instagram at the Jiu-Jitsu Company. My own personal Instagram is The Sloth Report. We also own Jiu-Jitsu Candles, the Jiu-Jitsu Candle Company. If I can make I a plug for that, I have never lit You're our best can- customer. <laughs> tell you why. I never lit a candle in my life barring like my kids' birthday candles, like ever. You guys came out with those candles. I get up real early in the morning and I light it and it just go with the woodwick candle. <laughs> White belt tears, my favorite. It's awesome. It's just a great candle. My wife loves them. We give them as gifts. They're, for not, they're fantastic. We light them up. 
it gives you a background noise in the morning when you're doing your work. Makes the Thanks, room man. smell phenomenal. And you and Angie do a great job with those candles. They're phenomenal. So really Thanks, cool. Thanks, bud. Appreciate it. It's jujitsucandles.com. Okay, um, cool. Double check me on that. I'll, I'll double check later, but I'm pretty sure it's jujitsucandles.com. I'll put that um, in the show notes. No, I'll put them all in the show notes. Josh, I appreciate you, man. Thank you. <laughs> appreciate uh, you here. too, buddy. Absolutely. Thank you for everything. And uh, hey, I thank you for joining us. And I wish you nothing but success in the future. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it, buddy.